I'm going to slaughter some sacred cows today, and many people listening are going to choose to be offended. I'm going to attack head-on the toxic, lethal lies of feminism and cultural Marxism, and many people listening will be unaware how much of those lies they have believed, and even today consider actual truth. Satan is the father of lies, and the greatest deceptions come from him. Jesus himself identified the Pharisees as being satanic, children of Satan, when he observed their hearts were full of lies and murder. The parts of our culture which are entirely deceived and detached from reality are therefore satanic and rightly opposed. So here's the caveat and disclaimer to disarm your intellectual suicide vest and equip you to consider more than you're currently comfortable to hear. I don't know you. This isn't about you. I'm not condemning you or calling you satanic. I'm not giving you offence, even if you choose to take it. This is about the failings and flaws of Western culture, subversions of goodness and beauty, which will destroy the very foundation of everything, the wisdom of generations gone by built what we now take for granted upon, and the erosions which will see our great civilization also washed away by history. So consider not your own home and the lifestyle decisions as the primary topic of discussion, but the progressive shift in social standards and national values which affects them. That said, let's make some hamburgers out of some sacred cultural cows. May all that you stand for and that we stand for be preserved under the providence of God for the happiness of mankind. The trouble is caused by unthinking people who carelessly throw away ageless ideals as if they were old and outworn machines. But it is the values of individual liberty, equality before the law, and the supremacy of people over the state to which we can always with confidence return as a powerful and uniting force. Australia is not a secular country. It is a free country. Welcome to the Church and State Show, I'm Dave Pellow. Critical theory is the philosophy that everything accepted, established and traditional must be inverted and destroyed. It believes institutions, not individuals, are responsible for social problems and therefore all institutions, such as traditional concepts of family, marriage and motherhood in particular, must be demolished. That's why the long march through the institutions is particularly strategic and must be intentionally resisted and reversed. We mustn't abandon the education system or major political parties any more than we should accept the cancerous undefinition of gender and marriage. It's been the case for decades that there has been a war on culture, perhaps even since the first deception of the first mother, Eve, by a satanic lie which sowed doubt in what God said about boundaries he'd established for humanity. And in this way, we see recorded the satanic paradigm for critical theory and moral progressivism. Genesis chapter 3 says, The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. 
It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. First, doubt in the authority of God's word is completely identical with critical theory, which holds that everything accepted, established, traditional, moral, and timeless must be undermined, inverted, or demolished. The boundaries God sets are not arbitrary or capricious, but for our safety and our maximum flourishing. But notice the serpent didn't just say, did God really say? Casting doubt on the authority of the boundaries. But he also misrepresented and exaggerated what God did say in the first instance of propaganda to support a false narrative, like so much of the arguments against what God said today in media, internet, and culture. The serpent asked, Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Eve identified this when she responded, Of course we can. It's only the tree, the one tree, in the middle, which we aren't allowed to even touch, or we will die. Another way of saying what she said is, what a stupid question. Of course God gave us more than enough to satisfy and enormous amounts of liberty to enjoy. And the few boundaries he did give us are the furthest thing imaginable from oppressive and even then are for our blessing. This is the healthy balance between order and freedom far from the unhealthy extremes of authoritarianism and anarchy. This is what healthy cultures look like. But what Satan wants, and what he still achieves through critical theory and cultural Marxism, is what he tempted Eve with, the removal of dependence on God's authority, replacing it with human efforts to be like God and human interpretations of what is right and what is wrong independent of our Creator. Yet to this day, many remain willfully ignorant despite observable landslides in culture to the point that leaders of technologically advanced societies like a USA Supreme Court Justice and Australia's Prime Minister struggle to observe that a woman is plainly and exclusively defined as an adult female human. This is critical theory. This sociological paradigm wrongly believes the obvious mental health epidemic among people experiencing feelings of same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria is not solved by talk therapy or time, but by unraveling timeless institutions, undefining what a woman is, and all sexual boundaries. About a hundred years ago now, there arose a belief amongst corrupted psychologists and pseudoscientists like Alfred Kinsey, Wilhelm Reich, and Sigmund Freud, that sexual ethics were detrimental and family, religion, and morality were repressive traditions to be freed from. Reich even went so far as to claim better sex could solve society's problems. The 60s slogan, Make Love Not War, was not just a youthfully rebellious juxtaposition of two unrelated ideas, 
but echoes of a seriously proposed academic idea that promiscuity would end sexual frustrations, which were the real cause of social ills and even armed conflicts between nations. The belief spread in the 60s that family values were repressive and that morality was the great evil, not immorality, and that sexual matters belonged in the realm of science, not religion. Horny UD students in the 60s didn't need much convincing and ran with it, and they built the political, education, news and entertainment industries we've inherited in this century, which shape our culture. Thanks at least in part to psychoanalyst quacks and sexual predators of the cultural revolution, contraception, pornography, promiscuity, no-fault divorce, government welfare and childcare, homosexuality and abortion were all normalised in the 50s and certainly by the 60s. All of these things are intensely anti-women and anti-family. If you want a general idea of what proportion of prisoners in any nation are from any particular cultural background, look first to the rates of single mothers in that culture. The more marriages which fail and leave mothers reliant on government to raise their children, the more that culture will be likely to produce violent criminals who end up incarcerated. For example, Asian families are particularly successful at promoting the centrality of healthy and cohesive families and are consequently underrepresented in prison populations compared to their portion of the national population. The opposite is as true for Indigenous Australians as it is for Black Americans. Skyrocketing rates of mothers being abandoned, neglected or abused by their children's fathers has a direct causative effect on the character and behaviour of the children in that culture. The advent of the big government welfare state in the 60s was a devastating blow to families, with women being subsidised who married the government instead of a man. Welfare isn't the solution to family breakdown. Government isn't the family children need. The solution is undoing the cultural revolution of critical theory and restoring the institutions which rely on a healthy, ordered view of motherhood to sustain them. We should actually celebrate and advocate for motherhood, not just the mothers we love. To do so will vastly shrink the need for and reach of government into our families, and that is a conflict of interest for those employed by government and nourished by our culture's addiction to expanding its reliance on government. You will never hear them say, let's make mothers more important in our society. You will hear them promise free contraception, free abortion, free childcare, free public schooling, and free aged care facilities. You will rarely hear them advocate for easy or free adoption, income splitting in a marriage, incentives for stay-at-home mothers or grandmothers, vouchers for school choice or homeschooling, or multi-generational living as a more loving and economical solution for aged care than institutions. You certainly won't hear them offer tax deductions for church offerings designated to empowering local congregations to be a viable alternative to government welfare. I'll unpack that idea more a little bit later. 
but you get the point. The government is not interested in shrinking its services or power, primarily because it reduces our addiction and dependence upon them, which is bad for their employment prospects and power. We all know the pressure they are under to sustain and increase the public service sector, which in turn feeds our culture's addiction to the harmful drug of government welfare and services. Today, commercializing Mother's Day is a hypocritical gesture from a consumerist culture which promotes individualism and dependence on government welfare over the God-designed interdependence of marriage, family, and church relationships. If we as a society truly valued motherhood, we would promote and subsidize mothers raising their own children instead of outsourcing parenthood to strangers in childcare centers at the earliest age possible and then factory-style mass schooling until they were ready to get a job and leave home. The message being communicated to women in this culture is that the best years of your life should be spent in an office, climbing the corporate ladder and competing with men, and that motherhood is of so little value to society or your personal satisfaction, it's what you only do in your spare time. Instead of celebrating maternity, society subsidizes therapeutic interventions to prevent conception and calls that empowering. The message is that fertility will be there later and motherhood should be delayed as an undesirable obstacle to everything else a woman could be doing from sex without consequences, which just empowers the prolonged promiscuity of both men and women beyond a woman's limited years of fertility, to a corporate career and equal pay, empowering the need for life-destroying IVF in her 40s and loneliness in her 50s and later years. One of the largest cohorts of people on the unemployment type of government welfare is women in their 50s. What a tragic embarrassment for their husbands, their families, and our culture, that with all the irreplaceable value and importance a mother can bring, they are not entirely provided for to spare them from having to work in a for-profit industry. How's your sacred cow hamburger going? A bit too rare? Now, I'm not saying women don't want to work or aren't fulfilled, at least in some temporary ways, by career success. And I'm not saying they shouldn't work outside the home. I know firsthand that women who don't work outside the home work tirelessly at home. What I am saying is our culture has been vandalized and existentially threatened by critical theory, which paints the high calling and sacred vocation of motherhood as a prison, as slavery, an oppression from which women should seek release. And that is a satanic lie which honestly celebrating Mother's Day contradicts. We have prioritized and celebrated women who work outside the home, but stigmatized and abandoned motherhood. Many stay-at-home mums feel sneering contempt or pity when other women ask them what they do and hear the honest answer. We have a little family, got married young, and <laughs> they're living that life now. I am 
definitely grateful to be able to get to stay home with my kids pretty much full time. But when it comes to like pursuing music and stuff, this is all brand new. <laughs> my name is Sarah Beth and I'm 25 and I'm from California. You cannot be 25. Give I, us have, a I have three kids, so that's like, Get what? away from here, what are you saying? <laughs> okay, Katie? Nope. It's okay. If Katie lays on the table, I think I'm gonna pass out. Three kids. <laughs> Honey, you've been laying on the table too much. Yeah. No. You know. <laughs> In my opinion, stay-at-home mums, especially homeschooling mothers, are the heroes of society and the single surest guarantee of saving our culture from entire collapse. I can scarce imagine what would have happened to the United States of America, but for the influence, character, and leadership instilled into Abraham Lincoln by his mother. President Lincoln said, All that I am, or hope to be, I owe to my angel mother. Praise God she did not outsource raising him to the government, but raised him in the fear and admonition of the Lord herself. And about the same time as the bloodthirsty revolution in France, a moral, spiritual and cultural revival was breaking out in England, which many credit for helping prevent more political violence there. Chief of preachers in that time was John Wesley, who said, My mother was the source from which I derived the guiding principles of my life. And... I learned more about Christianity from my mother than from all the theologians in England. No industry career is capable of such potent influence over the next generation's quality of character, virtue and education. But a mother's time divided is unavoidably a child's discipleship diluted. Hard to hear, but true. God gave your children to you and no one else and for good reason. As our culture has more and more divided a mother's time with her young children, husband, extended family, and church community, I find it small wonder our culture keeps degrading into immorality, injustice, and government dependence. Psalm 127 says this about the importance of children being intentionally discipled by their parents. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall confront their enemies in the gate. Children are your heritage. They are the primary legacy you leave the world, the best influence you have on shaping the future of our nation and promoting the kingdom of heaven here on earth. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Arrows are a weapon to destroy enemies, which can be sent far across a battlefield to far beyond where you can reach with a sword or a spear. Today we might say, like bullets in a rifle are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has a mag full of them. And of course, I have to point out that God here is saying your youth is when families should be started. Not after you've traveled the world and built a career or paid off your home, but your youth. Get married and have kids young and raise them yourself if you want to help save our culture 
and fight the satanic lies and destruction of critical theories. Now that is countercultural. Currently, it's the government that has the weapon loaded with your children. They know that if they want power in 10 years, more or less, when most children become voters, they have to train the future voters to only demand policies which make government bigger. Think about it. Climate action now doesn't mean build the resilience of citizens to flourish despite historical and inevitable changes to climate by giving them affordable energy, employment, and just enough prosperity to be self-sufficient and afford some charity. No, it means we don't care what you come up with, how much it costs, how little it helps, or what harm it does to humanity or the environment, just expand government power and revenue and do anything. But if the same children striking school with government and teacher blessings to protest carbon dioxide, if they wanted to protest lockdowns, mask mandates and mass medication, the government will not be cheering them on because such protests demand less government size and power not more. Anti-mother policies require more government than natural motherhood, which has been happening for thousands of years. That's because motherhood is an institution, and the lies and confusion of God's design for family as proposed by critical theory requires powerful interference and patronage to be sustained, the kind which only bigger government can offer. Our society subsidizes the cost of mothers intentionally ending the lives of their unborn babies, calls the killing healthcare, and denies post-abortive women the right to even grieve the loss of their unborn child by calling the mourning regret and PTSD merely a result of social stigma. But it's not. It's a destructive fracturing of the designed instincts and nature of women. Post-abortion trauma was politically, not scientifically, erased from psychological diagnostic manuals decades ago. Because by its actions, our society denies the value of motherhood, a necessary step in the demolition of that sacred institution. Instead of raising, educating and discipling our children in the home, our society demands we send them off to strangers for six hours a day plus travel time, five days a week, 40 weeks a year for up to 13 to 17 years, and then let the internet and TV raise them when they are between school and extracurricular activities. We actually get very little time preparing our kids for adulthood, armed and equipped to understand the times or thrive in a sick, depraved, confused world. We then wonder why people who've been raised by the government and Hollywood believe everything the government and Hollywood tell them at election time. And then they vote for more power and money for the government to interfere in the lives, values and freedoms of every family with each passing generation. Imagine the beauty of a society where family was the central social value instead of careers and consumerism. Fathers would work not for two luxury cars, overseas holidays, and McMansions with no backyard, but to provide for his wife and children, 
maintaining a balance with the time they need from him in the home and giving what only a father can give. Proverbs 13.22 says, Wise and good people leave an inheritance for their children's children. Imagine families which supported each other through the generations, building an inheritance and generational wealth instead of the foolishly independent trend of spending the kids' inheritance. We wouldn't need anywhere near as much inflationary interference from government to solve housing unaffordability. Imagine a society where family, not government, is the first resort for avoiding extreme poverty when youth are looking for work. Instead of unemployment subsidies from the unrelated strangers' care of the government, young job seekers should be able to depend on their family for food and accommodation and not need dehumanizing payments for doing nothing. Japan's welfare state embodies familialism, whereby families, rather than the government, provide the social safety net. Critical theorists and cultural Marxists consider familial welfare models to be disadvantaged by not including government childcare. They would, because they hate motherhood and families, and want the government to raise and indoctrinate the next generation from before they can even speak. After encountering people myself who spend their professional lives supporting childcare centres to promote transgender acceptance amongst the precious vulnerable children, I think the sooner we bring our kids home to the safety of full-time mothers, the better for our kids and culture. When women have raised their own children to adulthood, they, not government, should then be the first resort to supporting their children's new role as parents, assisting with the childcare, raising, educating and discipling of their grandchildren, as well as those in their wider family and the local church they are part of. We have a crisis in aged care with a shortage of places and carers, but how many places could be freed up if families were the first resort for the loving support no facility can offer? It's not preposterous. It's just not our culture. In nations like Japan and most of Asia, the average household consists of three generations. It is the nuclear family which is defined as only two generations, a Western cultural value, which I think has made us poorer and undoubtedly more reliant on big government. And yes, some people don't have the families to support them, and some have dysfunctional families, or families that, after decades and generations of individualism and dependence on government, families are in no financial position to support them. But the biblical model for such not uncommon scenarios is then that the local church would support those in its congregation which need a social safety net. That's not socialism, as many have vainly imagined. It's Christian charity. And it's not compelled by governments, but voluntary, compelled by the love of Christ in our hearts. I dream of a society where most families are hurt and embarrassed if any of its members are reliant on government welfare and take it as a sign of their failure. Sure, many of us couldn't do that yet, 
but we can make it our value and share that dream, making financial and cultural decisions now to build towards it and maybe achieve it in the next generation. I hope that in 50 years, if not tomorrow, the average church congregation will be likewise determined that none of its regular attenders would need any government welfare. The welfare state has usurped the God-designed role of families and churches, and it's time for us to take it back. Now, I understand that unraveling the rat's nest of the worst of socialism and consumerism in our cultures is no quick or easy task, but it does begin by changing our cultural values and conversations. For a start, the average Christian needs to be a whole lot more generous with their regular giving at church if the church is going to replace much of what the government currently does, like education and welfare. An interim step to offset the burden of heavy taxation and generous giving would be for a righteous government, which claims to be invested in getting people off welfare and empowering mothers, families and local communities, to make offerings designated for charity at church tax-deductible. That would be wonderfully economical, because the government would only lose a fraction of what was still entirely being directed to social safety nets. Yet it could reduce its costs by the whole amount given, if not more, given the heavy rates of volunteerism in church communities. What we can all do today is whatever we can. We have to be honest about the cliff we are heading for by promoting and or abusing anti-mother ideas like abortion, childcare, consumerism, individualism, careerism, feminism, outsourcing education, pornography, promiscuity, sexual confusion, gender dysphoria, social media access for minors, and more you'll think of tomorrow. Motherhood is a sacred vocation, and we should pay double honour to those who devote every waking moment to its duties and opportunities. Of course, this isn't to demean or condemn mothers who have no choice or even choose to divide their time between work and children, but it is an intentional barbecue of the sacred cows of corrupted culture and satanic lies which sneer at vocational homemakers, wives and mothers. It's Mother's Day in Australia. I submit to you that the single best thing we can do for our culture and nation is to daily celebrate and promote the high calling of vocational motherhood and the biblical model for marriage and family as the cure for a dying culture. Well, that's it for this episode of The Church and State Show. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you've been challenged, confronted, and that this conversation would stimulate growth in our culture. There may be some bits I've got wrong. I encourage you to chew on it all and not throw the whole thing out and spit the bones out, but eat the fish. If you would like to support this show, please head to the website, davepello.com where you can become a one-off or regular contributor to support this important ministry. Sign up for the newsletter, share this with your friends because I guarantee you 1% of my followers on social media will see this. 
the only way to stay in touch and get every episode is to subscribe to the email newsletters. Thank you to the supporters and regular partners, and I will see you again next week. Today, we need a special kind of courage, not the kind needed in battle, but a kind which makes us stand up for everything that we know is right, everything that is true and honest. We need the kind of courage that can withstand the subtle corruption of the cynics, so that we can show the world that we are not afraid of the future.